Before we start, a quick word. This episode is a crossover with our friend David Roberts, the proprietor of the newsletter and podcast Volts. If you're hearing this on the Carbon Copy feed and you like what you hear from David, go subscribe to his musings and interviews at volts.wtf. If you're hearing this on the Volts feed and you like what you hear, a narrative version of the biggest stories in climate, just search for The Carbon Copy in your podcast app and hit follow. Thanks. From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Pop culture is increasingly grappling with climate change themes, and some of it is appealing to wide audiences. Billie Eilish swept the Grammys in 2020 with an album that conveyed her climate anxieties. There are movies like Snowpiercer, Dune, and Interstellar, all conveying climate disaster while getting strong critical and popular reactions. And climate fiction, known as cli-fi, is creating some hits in the literary world. But there's a trend here. Popular art around climate is often dystopic. It looks far into the future. It can be heavy-handed. It fails to consider the forces causing it right now in nuanced ways. To the great annoyance of David Roberts. Over the course of my career, most attempts to grapple with climate change via art, you know, music or movies or TV shows or poetry, have just been bad, pretty bad. David runs a newsletter and podcast called Volts. He's been writing about the intersection of climate science with politics, tech, and culture since 2004. And he's been exposed to a lot of climate-themed art. Most of it, he says, is preachy, or it mangles the science, or it uses climate as a backdrop without actually saying anything about the problem. It's so big and so distant and so kind of all-encompassing and abstract that it's very difficult to approach it via a specific place or person or story or relationship. And those specifics are what give art its power and its meaning. So when he heard about a new Netflix film last December called Don't Look Up, he figured it'd be more of the same. The film, written and directed by Adam McKay, follows two astronomers played by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence as they try to warn the world about a planet-destroying asteroid. McKay said it was an allegory for our response to climate change. And David watched the film out of a sense of duty. I went in with lowest, the lowest possible expectations. I expected almost nothing. I expected it to be A, didactic and preachy, and B, to get little things wrong. But this film was different. It directly took on the insanity of climate change without actually talking about climate change. You know, I sort of, I guess, realized at some point, to my great, immense surprise and pleasure, I was like, oh, this is a movie. This is not a side project that they're going to put on like the Discovery Channel so that all the climate people can go watch it. This is a legitimate attempt to make a popular, real movie. That attempt succeeded. After a limited theatrical release in early December, Don't Look Up started streaming on Christmas Eve. And in a matter of days, viewership exploded. It broke records on Netflix. I think it has the most hours streamed for any movie in Netflix history in the space of a, of a week, the week of December 27th. And, and in terms of total streams, it's the second biggest movie in Netflix history. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Don't Look Up is a rarity in Hollywood, an entertaining film about climate change that hooked audiences and got lots of people talking. Why did it resonate so strongly? This week, The Carbon Copy is teaming up with David Roberts of Volts. We'll share his conversation with writer-director Adam McKay on the themes and impact of the film. 
I take it you're not a huge fan of the day after tomorrow. <laughs> well, it's a it's a perfectly good cheese ball disaster movie. You know, like it's it's not the worst cheese ball disaster movie or the best, but it's just a cheese ball disaster movie. Like y- y- you don't learn anything about the social dynamics of addressing climate change. Back in 2004, two years before Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth came out, Hollywood produced the first modern climate disaster movie, The Day After Tomorrow. It was poorly written, scientifically preposterous, but it featured big names. It had great special effects for the time, and it was a solid commercial success. That was also the year David Roberts started writing about the overheating planet. And our collective understanding about climate change has shifted radically since that film came out. It's widely accepted now as kind of a background fact about our world. And so, in some sense, some pop culture, at least, is trying to go beyond to actually say stuff about it and reckon with it and reckon for what it means for our lives and our future. And that's very interesting to me because the sort of the psychological and intellectual difficulty of wrapping your head around climate change is something I've spent 15 years with and and watching people come to it and try to process it in real time is very fascinating. But Hollywood hasn't changed that much. The majority of films touching on climate that do get made are focused on action, disaster, dystopian storylines. They don't grapple with what caused the hellscape, just what comes after. Which is why David was initially skeptical of the premise of Don't Look Up, and why he was delighted when screenwriter and director Adam McKay flipped it. This comet is what we call a planet killer. At this exact moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess? Sit tight and then assess. The sit tight part comes first, then you gotta digest it. That's the assessment period. This is the worst news in the history of humanity. He just blew us off. What are we gonna do? We have to release the information. So we just leak it. McKay is a comedic force. He co-wrote and directed the breakout hit Anchorman, which was, coincidentally, released the same year as The Day After Tomorrow, 2004. He directed Talladega Nights and Step Brothers, In 2015, he made The Big Short, a comedy drama about the 2008 financial crisis. Since then, he's increasingly used comedy to take on serious subjects. Before Don't Look Up was released, McKay called it a Clark Kent disguise for the climate crisis. Not usually a good way to sell a comedy. But the movie isn't so much about the asteroid coming to destroy Earth. The asteroid is the stand-in for climate change. It's about the insane and horrifying ways we'll convince ourselves not to do something about it. So when it was actually funny, like funny in a legitimate way, not funny in that, oh, like for a movie about climate change, it's pretty funny kind of way, but like a legitimate funny way, a real humor. I was like, oh, they're really doing this. They're really like, it doesn't force climate change on you. Like if you just went as not a climate person, I can totally imagine just, you know, normies going into the theater and watching this and not even realizing it's meant to be a climate change analogy. You know, I've heard and seen on Twitter people who went and saw it and and thought it was an analogy for COVID or thought it was an analogy for any other, uh, you know, nuclear war, nuclear armament or whatever, like any sort of potential existential threat you can slot in there. And that may have been the secret to the film's success. Over the holiday season, Don't Look Up quickly became one of the most popular releases ever on Netflix. 
It's racked up over 320 million streaming hours. And it sparked an overwhelming online response. Climate scientists writing op-eds saying they felt seen, culture writers critiquing the asteroid allegory, and audiences responding to the angst. And it became, I think, exactly what, you know, if you're Adam McKay, you want it to become, which is, you know, if you tell people, I made a movie about climate change, they're not going to herd to see it. <laughs> they're just not. But like, if it becomes this sort of, everybody has something to say about it, like everybody's arguing about it online, it became like a water cooler thing, which is what you want, right? So now everybody's like, well, it's in the discourse. I have to go watch it. So I have a take for, to, to, to contribute to the discourse. So to figure out what worked, David went straight to the source, Adam McKay. A few weeks after the release of Don't Look Up, the two sat down to talk about whether the film's commercial success could lead to more nuanced art about climate in Hollywood. They started with the reactions to the movie and the reasons for making it in the first place. Netflix people were saying they'd never seen, I mean, they do crazy amounts of data. I can only imagine. Oh my God, it's it's crazy. And they, I'm pretty sure they know how I'm going to die. Statistically, they're within <laughs> 96% of how I'm going to die. And they said that they've never seen a comedy play ag- across this many countries. I think the movie was like number one in like 87 countries and top 10 in like 90. And they've never seen this kind of play across. And I think that's actually for people that care about the climate and care about the state of the world, I think that's a very hopeful thing that this current moment in the world is that universal. I've never experienced that before. So, and then on the other hand, there's the critical response, which has been (laughs) just all over the place. I don't know, I guess, what I expected, but it's been such a bizarre range. Like, you think you're so smart. You're not so smart. (laughs) Like, I'm smarter than you. A lot of this just, like, a lot of critical reviews struck me as, like, here is here are the ways that I am smarter than this guy who tried to make this movie. (laughs) This is a weird critical response. It it was strange, but I, I think what it really points to when you're, like, now I've had some time to digest it, is, like, there's just a couple basic things. Like, we are living... Regardless, like if someone didn't like the movie or like the movie, there's no question we're living in an incredibly strange time right now. I mean, we're kind of looking at a straight shot to American democracy collapsing. I think regardless of whoever you are, like the Democrats have kind of face planted. I don't see much in the way of a takeover from the extreme right. So that's going on while at the same time, this absolutely catastrophic giant story of the collapse of the livable atmosphere that is hard for even some scientists to fully get their head around. It's so mammoth. That's happening at exactly the same time. So it doesn't surprise me that people would be... Oh, and, I, and I just don't forget the global pandemic. Just toss that in there, too. Oh, my God. I mean, that's how crazy... And, and by the way, towering, <laughs> epic income inequality. I mean, it mixed right yeah, in. Yeah, you could go it. on. Yeah, so we have all this stuff going on, and the idea that people would have passionate responses to how do you tell these stories makes sense. And the idea that a lot of people would be on different wavelengths of awareness or no awareness or somewhat awareness on multiple on those stories that we're talking about makes sense. And by the way, once again, 
I respect that. I'm not saying if someone didn't like the movie, it means they don't believe in climate change. Somehow through the social media lens, it became that I somehow had said that, whereas I never said that. (laughs) And people were like piling on, like, oh my God, which by the way, seems like something directly out of the movie, of course. And um, so I I think it really makes sense. I I think, you know, the reason we made the movie is because there's varying degrees of relationships with the idea of the climate crisis. And that's one of the problems we're confronting. So now that I have a little distance from it, part of me is like, why did I think our movie would be <laughs> yeah. any different than someone like yourself or someone yeah, like... Yeah, I could have you know, told you. I could have told you what would happen. <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll also say from from my perspective, somebody who's been in this game for a long time, like you, you know, you have this huge problem on your mind and no one official, no one who has power to fix it (laughs) seems to be paying attention. Like you're yelling and yelling and no one else is paying attention, but other climate people. So you just end up talking to other climate people and you end up arguing with other climate people and forming these sort of teams and factions within the climate movement because no one else is paying attention. So I think that's sort of like become the culture a little bit of the climate movement is like your, your number one priority is to shoot down this new one who thinks he's smart. Like I don't fully get it. But the bigger picture here is the crazy appetite of literally, we're talking with these Netflix numbers, hundreds of millions of people yeah, that's uh, wild. having this very visceral response. At the, and, and it's really fantastic. And then the other joy of the movie was just seeing a lot of climate scientists say, oh, my God, I feel seen like Peter Kalmus <laughs> wrote a great right. piece where he's like, oh, that's it. That's what I've been going through. And George Montpiat wrote a beautiful piece about the emotions he's been carrying. So the overwhelming story here is we're overjoyed with the response. We're overjoyed with the release. But but at the same time, I have much more. I already had sympathy for people like yourself. But now I think I get it in a much more personal, <laughs> in a much more personal way. Well, let's um, let's let's go back in time a little bit. You've you've said in. Um previous interviews that it was an IPCC uh, report that sort of originally grabbed you and shook you by the lapels and got you freaked out about this. That was a 2015-ish, 16-ish, am I right? Because the IPCC, you know, they do this every few years. Yeah, yeah. It's really a longer road than that. I mean, it was definitely the Al Gore documentary was the first Mm. time, Inconvenient Truth, where I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's no joke. You know, the famous moment where he shows the graph skyrocketing definitely hit me. I definitely started talking about it, wondering what was going on. But where it went from something I was worried about, or I would say, once again, in those polling categories they use where I went from the somewhat concern range (laughs) to the very, very concern range was that IPCC report and several other reports that came out culminating in me eventually not being able to sleep and my wife (laughs) being like, what's going on? And I'm like, I'm really like, I, this is bad. This is really, really, really bad. And and then I, I went through a little period where people around me were like, hey, relax. And I was like, no, it, it's really, really <laughs> bad. Uh, I was very late to this incredibly unfun party. Uh, you, you, <laughs> I think you showed up with some uh, onion dip around, you were saying around 2004. <laughs> but uh, 
But I, yeah, I came in around there. And then from every year since, it's just been escalating and reading David Wallace Wells's uh, Uninhabitable Earth and the more recent. Ooh, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, yeah. So that <laughs> that's definitely what led me um, to the uh, on-ramp of I got to do a movie about this. When we retell the history of humanity, human-caused climate change will definitely be the biggest storyline. But our brains can't handle the scope of the problem today. And that's where stories come in. We're evolved creatures who are evolved to care about things within a certain space around us and on a certain time scale, right? We're just mammals. That means close proximity and relatively short time scales. And Climate is huge and far away and slow. So how do you take something huge, far away and slow and make it speak emotionally to a creature that is not designed to, <laughs> to feel things about things that are giant and slow and abstract? Uh, so, and that's just a, it's a challenge for writing about climate change in any context. It's a challenge for talking about climate change, but it's a particular challenge for making art about climate change because art just is the sort of evocation of feeling, right? It only works if it's emotionally engaging on some level. So I'm fascinated by that challenge. McKay chose to deal with that challenge by using a fast-moving asteroid as a stand-in for slow-moving climate change. It helps convey the lunacy of how we talk about existential threats. There's a scene that captures this perfectly. It's where Kate DiBiaschi, the graduate student who discovered the planet Killing Comet, played by Jennifer Lawrence, is trying to calmly explain what's happening on live television until the anchors try to turn it into a joke. Okay. Well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. Right, it helps the medicine go down. And speaking of medicine, tomorrow we've got a two Well, maybe the destruction of the entire planet isn't supposed to be fun. Maybe it's supposed to be terrifying and unsettling. Oh. Please don't do that. And you should stay up Please. all night, every night, crying. When we're all 100% for sure gonna fucking die! <laughs> this is what I really loved about the movie, is not just sort of like this post-apocalyptic thing, like, oh, we should have cared about climate change. It really captures the present. It captures the unique, maddening, insanity of our present current circumstances not just that we can't get anybody to pause about climate change but we can't get anybody to pause and really care and really take seriously anything anymore and so i, I wanted to ask him and try to get from him do you think by showing that movies about serious topics can find an audience that you're going to inspire maybe other directors, other producers, other actors to, to maybe grapple more with the world around them and not just make escapism. You know, and of course, there's no clear, obvious answer to that. There's no clear yes or no to that. But it was interesting to get his thoughts on that as well. A brief word before we start the second half of the interview. We're not going to give away any plot points or direct spoilers, but there are some references to the way the film resolves. If that's a problem for you, go watch the movie and come back to the episode later. 
I just thought, you know, most people can agree, even my family members who are very right wing and friends of mine who are very progressive, everyone can agree we are living in absolutely unhinged times right now. And I thought maybe there's a, maybe that's a good purchase point with this idea. So yeah, I ended up doing uh, Don't Look Up. Yeah, I mean, I really thought the best, the best part of the movie is the way it shows how the, the kind of, entertainment news the newsertainment blob just has this capacity to absorb everything <laughs> or just to just to digest everything and let nothing change it like no matter how loud you yell it just absorbs it or you know you see it absorb dr mindy as he becomes sort of unwittingly kind of caught up in it and that's to me, the most maddening, not just about the climate crisis, but about everything these days, is that everything is at the same pitch. Everything is at the same volume. Everything is just the same blur. And it's just impossible to make anything stick out or to stop or to pause on anything or to think about anything. I mean, for me, just piggybacking exactly on what you were saying, the single moment in the movie, well, there's two moments, but the moment where DiCaprio, as Dr. Mindy says on the TV show, why does everything have to be so clever or, or likable? Why can't we, sometimes we just need to be able to say things to each other. Yes. That was, that's it. I mean, it, it's really an emotional movie. It's not a, it's not a, a narratively complex movie. It's really just the emotion of that. And that's exactly it. These formats, these shows, they will not let you just say things. It always gets twisted and given a certain color or shading. At least for me as a moviegoer, this is the first time I've seen these particular dysfunctions put to to fiction. The ve I mean, they're very specific to our present moment. And I've just never seen anybody else take them on. I think that's why you're getting these moments of people saying like, oh my God, I feel seen. Because like a lot of people are experiencing this and I just haven't seen it portrayed in, a, in another movie in quite the same way. You know, you watch a Hollywood movie, especially a big Hollywood movie with a bunch of stars, you are trained by a lifetime of movie viewing to expect the white horse at the end to expect the you know the good guys to, to to pull it off and it's sort of a very kind of you know it just inches right up to the ending and you're like well well oh well i guess not <laughs> it's really <laughs> I, I i i was i was i mean this might be perverse but i was delighted when i finally realized i was like oh he's not going to do it sweet he's just going to let it play out how, how how much did you think about that ending? How early did that come in? And like, what do you what do you what do you think is the larger significance of the ending? What are you trying to say? So the idea was just that, like, my God, we've watched like ten thousand movies, whether it's Marvel, whether it's James Bond, whether it's an action movie, Fast and the Furious, whatever it is, the comedies. I mean, the stuff I've done, and it's always a happy ending. You just know mm. it's coming. You know Hollywood's going to give it to you. And in some ways, I just started wondering, like. Are we sitting back and watching the climate and, and just expecting a happy ending? So I just thought there's a simple power to going straight down the chute with this ending and not having the white horse ride over the horizon line. And I have never been more nervous for a screening in my entire life than the first time I screened this movie 
there was a break in the pandemic. I think it was after, it was definitely after the vaccine and we couldn't believe it. They're like, you can do a screening if everyone's vaxxed and they wear masks, we safely can do it. And I was like, wow. And so, you know, you got to remember, this is a, a big movie. It's Netflix. They're a big company. You have these big stars in the movie. And we're going to go to like, I think the first one was in Orange County. And we're going to test screen <laughs> this movie that ends with, once again, spoiler alert, the entire planet. <laughs> and I was telling my wife and Hank, my editor, who during the period of putting the movie together, I spent equal amounts of time. with, <laughs> And I, I told them, I said, I've never been this nervous for a screening. This is feels like we may have screwed up in a, in a profound way where we could walk out of this screening and, you know, they test it from a zero to a hundred and, you know, the test screen, it, it's not a science. It's, it's very loose. You use it as a loose guide rail, but in general, if you get like a 35, that's really bad. <laughs> and you kind of want to be in like high fifties to low 80s in that zone and you're in the ballpark um and i was saying i was like there's a real chance and i had heard this about idiocracy that mike judge actually told me this that the first time he screened it he got a 20 and and i i met him down in austin and i said wait wait what and he goes yeah we got a 20 guy you gotta have such strength of mind to stick to your guns in the face of that. A 20. I've never heard of that in my life. And he told me how then the studio felt like they were protecting Judge. And that's why they kind of buried the movie. And I was like, really? That's what happened. And and there's, I mean, maybe Spielberg and Scorsese are two people that could score a 20 on a movie and say, I don't care, put it in 3,000 theaters anyway. <laughs> right. No one else on the planet has the clout to tell a studio, I know we got a 20, but go with it. Like, there's just no one. So I'm driving to the screening and I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, uh, shit. And, but I love the ending. We've been watching it. We've screened it for ourselves. I think it's beautiful. And we screen it and it's the audience's favorite part of the movie. No shit. Universally, unequivocally. Do you get written? How does the whole thing work? Do you like do, do people write r responses as oh, well, yeah. or do they just like oh, yeah. tick a tick a one to ten type of thing? No, no. Everyone fills out a card. There's the one to ten stuff, but then there's handwritten stuff. You do a focus group with twenty people afterwards. They ask in depth questions. Universally, no question about it. Favorite part of the movie: the ending. Interesting. I'm curious why. Like, do people say say why it was so satisfying to them? Could they articulate it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the focus group, the person who leads it, this is incredible woman who's actually in Vice. Uh, she runs the focus group in Vice, uh, where, you know, true story that they ran focus groups on the Iraq war. And she actually runs our focus groups and she asked them and um, they were very clear about it. They said, we're sick of the bullshit endings. <laughs> and it, it was an incredible moment where you realize, oh, of course, the audience is way smarter than, than a lot of times we give them credit for. Right. They're totally tuned into what's going on in the world. They then all expressed it. They then talked about the climate crisis. They talked about COVID. They talked about all the shit going on in the world. They're fully in line with it. They're sick of like constantly getting served fake happy endings. And it was the most amazing. I, I'm a big fan. And even though I've done silly comedies, I'm a big fan and never underestimate your audience. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I always say the Simpsons is like an example of you can be brilliantly stupid and, and you should 
even when you're doing silly stuff, try and be, you know, top of your intelligence, silly. And, and, Mm -hmm. um, and so I've always believed audiences can go way further than people think they're way smarter that, and voting, uh, you know, voting blocks, the population at large, they get way more than they get credit from, from the media, from the, you know, the savvy crowd, uh, the gatekeepers. But this even surprised me. You baffled the universe when, <laughs> when you pivoted and did the big short out of nowhere, went from, you know, comedies that are dumb in a smart way to, to something that's smart in a smart way <laughs> and, and about uh, an issue of substance. And I think probably you baffled people and I think probably a lot of people thought that was going to fall on its face and it didn't and you've kept at it and you've kept succeeding at it. So I'm just wondering, like, what's the temperature among your peers in Hollywood about making more of an effort to engage with issues, social issues, you know, it's so fraught for all the reasons we've discussed, but you're making a go of it and and succeeding. So is anybody going to follow along? Have you talked to other filmmakers about this? Yeah. You know, one of the coolest things I heard as a reaction to this was a couple of other filmmakers were like, you know what? Hey, can I talk to you about an idea that I have? Uh, Maybe. And I actually did get some of that. And I think they saw like, if I can take the right crosses that came with those reviews <laughs> and the savaging I took online and and then in the end have the movie, you know, find an audience like it, it, it did, I think they're like, shit, if he can do that, we can do that. So I think what people are starting to see is you can make money doing this, that it's not some altruistic thing like that it people want to audiences want to hear what's going on and um and and that it's a good thing that you can talk to people about the real stuff that's happening and they're excited by it so uh, it doesn't have to be altruistic it doesn't have to be pure business and there is this like nice middle ground so yeah for the first time i really started hearing people actively about three people actively reach out to me that want to talk about ideas so hopefully knock on wood i i think it's bound to happen you you can't live in the world we're living in right now and and pretend it's not going on so i think you're going to see more and more people going for it, whether it's in a subtle way, an overt way, a funny way, a horror movie, like there's a thousand different ways to tell the story of right now. And I think we're going to see more of it. So what do you think? Does this open the door to talk about climate change in ways that are audiences are actually going to care about and that something that Hollywood cares about actually make money? So I think it will matter in that it will show people that you can approach this topic obliquely and through humor. It's not artistic kryptonite, (laughs) right? It's possible to approach it and do it well. So I think, yeah, it could inspire ideas in other people. And more broadly, I think just McKay's career, I think, is demonstrating to people that you can make a movie about serious, important, complex things, and you can make it funny and you can make it good such that audiences will enjoy it and come and come to see it. That I think will be the most, the biggest proximate impact is just audiences are prepared to think and care about things 
That's sort of like anyone who's been in the climate space for as long as we have understands that feeling at a bone deep level. Like, why can't I make an impression on this machine? Why, like the, the news I am bringing is so bad. Why can't I dent this wall of noise? It's just incredibly frustrating. And he captured that, captured that frustration so well. And I hope that will become something that artists grapple with and think about and think through more of just the toxic information environment, because in a sense, that's the more proximate problem. David Roberts writes and runs the Volts newsletter. And I should say the entire time he had an underwater background on with goldfish swimming around his head. It was a little distracting, but quite appropriate for the topic. This is the first time I've ever fiddled with one of these things, and now I feel ridiculous and can't, and can't reverse it. If you want to hear the full conversation between David and Adam McKay, go over to volts.wtf or follow Volts in any podcast app. You can do the same thing for Carbon Copy. We're telling the story of the changing planet one news story at a time. If you do like this, click follow on any podcast app. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Dalvin Abouage, Jamie Kaiser, Alexandria Hur, and Daniel Waldorf. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the Canary Media team for their partnership. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Before we go, make sure to check out our companion podcast, Catalyst with Shale Khan. Find that at canarymedia.com or any podcast app. And join us here next week. I'm Stephen Lacey.